let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, in March of 1977, downtown DC was paralyzed by the largest hostage-taking in US history. It was carried out by an obscure Muslim sect. It was a huge story. And today, almost no one remembers it. With a big new book that drops today and has already drawn rave reviews, author Shahan Mufti is out to change that. It's Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Shahan Mufti, thank you for being here. It's great to be with you, Michael. So your book is about the Hanafi Muslim siege of Washington of 1977. And I had no idea. It was huge. Can you tell us about this? What was it? I mean, there were people in Washington, D.C. at the time who remember very little of it and can probably just remember a traffic gnarl uh, somewhere. <laughs> but this was in March 9th, 1977, the morning. Uh, at this point, President Carter has been in office uh, no more than 50 days, so it's early days in that administration. And it's a very nice, warm morning, and Yitzhak Rabin is in town, the Israeli prime minister. And it's an important visit, and Carter is actually holding a press conference that morning. But as Carter's press conference is going on, a group of men are at, at a house about five or six miles up the road from the White House, are loading an insane amount of uh, weapons and ammunition onto a U-Haul truck. And they are preparing to take over locations in Washington, D.C. and taking hostages. And between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m., this event unfolds, the Hanafi siege. It begins at B'nai B'rith. This is the largest Jewish services organization in the country. Seven men from the Hanafi group arrive at that location and take over the building pretty much in an hour. While that's still going on, police is still responding to that. Up Massachusetts Avenue, a few miles at the Islamic Center of Washington, D.C. on Embassy Row, three other men, all brothers, take over the Islamic Center and take uh, about a dozen hostages over there, mostly Muslim in that case. And then that situation distracts the Washington police. And while all that's happening, all hell breaks loose at the district building, now known as John Wilson Building, but right kind of close to the White House, a few hundred yards from the White House, two men from the Hanafi group arrive on the fifth floor of the district building and turn into the council offices, the DC council's offices, and with guns and knives and swords, they take hostages there, and a firefight breaks out there, actually, between the Hanafis and security and the police. One reporter, a young reporter from the Howard University radio station, is shot immediately and actually dies on the spot. Maurice Williams, for whom the press center at the D.C. district building is now named for on that fifth floor. And then Councilman Marion Barry gets a shrapnel in his left side of his chest and is bleeding from the chest. 
So they have all these people hostage. How many are there? In total, there was a little under 150 who were initially held hostage at these three locations, all three locations. And you say this is the largest hostage taking in American history? Yes, on American soil, I guess. During the 60s, there was a lot of air piracy mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s, especially. So there may have been more hostages taken in the air at some point. But yes, as far as I could tell, and I really looked long and hard and trying to find a hostage situation that was larger ever, a real hostage situation. And I think this is the largest hostage taking ever on American soil. Who were the gunmen? Who are the Hanafi Muslims? The Hanafi Muslims are a really interesting group. They're little known, even in the circle of people who study American Islam. They were all African-American Muslims. Their leader was a man named Hamas Abdul Khalis, who was born Ernest Timothy McGee in Gary, Indiana. He was in the U.S. Army and then actually worked as a professional jazz musician, kind of successful jazz musician. And then he turned towards the Nation of Islam. He fell out with that group quickly and uh, then found Sunni Islam, more traditional Islam, meeting an immigrant mystic in New York City. They founded the Hanafi movement in the early 1960s. He brought on board a young uh, basketball superstar, Louis Alcindor, who he gave the name Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was able to really kind of bankroll the operation for uh, Khalas. And they moved to Washington, D.C. in the early 70s and quickly kind of established their presence in the D.C. circle, Muslim circles, as an important organization. One of the sort of instigating events for the siege took place in 1973, and they are still beefing with, they're still at odds with the Nation of Islam, and a, a terrible thing happened. Exactly. In some ways, the story of the siege could begin there four years earlier, when the Hanafi headquarters on 16th Street is invaded by seven men from the Nation of Islam. Assassins took over that house, and uh, it was a massacre. It was the worst massacre in DC's history at that time, the worst mass murder. And the capital was a seriously violent place, remember, through the 50s, 60s. There was a lot of murder in Washington, D.C. And How many people were killed in this, um, in this incident? In the Hanafi Center, there were eight people who were killed. And other than just one, they were blood relatives of Hollis's. So his children, his grandchildren. So here's a weird story I learned. I, I was born in August 1973 mm. and the following winter. So 1974, my dad was called for jury duty for the trial of this very uh, oh, incident. Oh, wow. And <laughs> he was terrified of being picked because it was they were saying it was going to be a sequestered jury for a long time and so on. And he said, truthfully, I think, he said, you know, I have a baby at home and I don't think I can be fair judging a case where a young baby's children have been killed. Oh, Wow. You saved your father a lot of hassle right there, <laughs> Michael. Wow. I've looked at that jury selection in detail. There was six to 700 people in that jury pool, initial jury pool. And it was one of the most elaborate, at that point, I think the most elaborate trial that had ever occurred in the city. You got to remember, this is also home rule era. So DC's courts are new. The Department of Justice was prosecuting this, but it was being prosecuted in DC courts. So that is crazy. Maybe your father was somewhere in that court transcript <laughs> that I poured over. So, so it went to trial. What wound up happening at trial? Oh, if it only was that simple to answer. 
This trial did turn into trials. So obviously there were seven men. The first trial was for four of the people and they were all convicted. Um, there was a trial that followed of two other. And then the final trial was of the ringleader and they were also convicted. Uh, the story doesn't even end there. Um, the judge in this, who was assigned to all three cases, he overturned the convictions of one of the people and ordered a retrial of that man. I mean, this is all really complex stuff, but it was also really pivotal. Over four years of going in and out of courtrooms, Hollis watched his daughter, who had been shot in the head several times and survived, testify again and again in front of a jury. And in the end, actually, it was uh, about a few months before Hollis led the men to uh, take out hostages in D.C., the fourth trial had broken down completely when Hollis's daughter, who was the main only witness in some ways to these events, she broke down on the stand and the judge declared a mistrial. And it was that moment where Hollis started thinking of seeking justice on his own. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. So when they attack and they take these hostages, what do they tell people what they want? Oh, uh, well, at first they don't tell people. In the beginning, the first few hours of this hostage taking, it's not at all about the murders and the massacre at the Hanafi Center. The Hanafis are talking about a movie. That day, a biopic of the Islamic prophet Muhammad was premiering in Los Angeles and New York City. It was just an, a really elaborate epic, one of the most expensive movies made in film history at that point. But in Islam, showing images of the prophet is... is Problematic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, uh, and we know that. It's not a story we are very familiar with over the last 20 years, was watching it unfold in different ways. But yeah, actually the director of that movie was a Syrian Muslim immigrant, Mustafa Akkad. And he was able to get funding for this from a lot of Arab investors, including, and most importantly, Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyan dictator, bankrolled this project towards the end. It's initially these two things that, that collide, this biopic of Muhammad and the Hanafi takeover, claiming that they are taking hostages in Washington, D.C. to defend the honor of the Islamic prophet. And so Hollis's first demand, that the police and the negotiators heard was for that movie's premiere in New York City to be halted and for the reels to be removed from the United States. That was the initial demand. And at that point, by the time the shootout was happening, at that moment, the movie had already started in New York City at the Rivoli Theater in, in Times Square. So, so the demands continue. 
Oh, yes. So the movie is halted, but that's not enough. Khalis then demands that the murderers, all the men in prison and out of prison, be brought to him to face justice. Basically, Khalis had taken justice into his own hands at this point, he was claiming, and that he was going to execute Allah's will on them, which all the negotiators um, assumed to mean that he was going to execute them. And uh, then a third demand, which was... Khalas wanted $750 in cash delivered to his wife at the headquarters. This was a an obscure demand and people who didn't know Khalas and didn't understand what was going on couldn't immediately decode what the $750 was. Khalas kind of came up with this figure. That is what was owed to him monetarily to make up for the the trials that were botched in his mind. Towards the end of the first day, there's also a demand that Wallace Muhammad, who is Elijah Muhammad's son, uh, who had taken over the organization, the Nation of Islam, after his father's death, he be brought to Khalis along with his star disciple, the heavyweight champion, Muhammad Ali. So he, in the end, Khalis was also, by, day, by the end of the first day, was also demanding that Muhammad Ali and Wallace Muhammad, two of the most famous Muslims in America, American Muslims, they both be delivered to him as well at the B'nai B'rith, where, again, negotiators assumed he wanted to execute them. So let's move from inside to outside. How did this end? I mean, it goes on for a couple of days. The city uh, traffic is snarled. It's, it is getting huge amounts of attention. What happens? Yeah, a huge amounts of attention nationally. PBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. On March 9th, the National Evening News was wall to wall. Good evening. Black Islamic gunmen invaded three buildings in Washington today. So NBC, ABC, CBS. In apparent revenge for a mass murder four years ago. Walter Cronkite is covering it. Barbara Walter. At about 11 o'clock this morning, a group of gunmen stormed into the headquarters of B'nai B'rith, the Jewish service organization in Washington. And they so by the second morning, it's national news and it's a national crisis. Afternoon, more hostages and more shooting. This time at the district building, which serves as Washington City Hall. By the end of the first day, a negotiating team had started to assemble. So there is a really a motley crew of characters who've gathered there, which include local, like police, obviously, but DC officials, but also a lot uh, of people who are not identifying themselves and are from every possible three-letter agency in the capital. They're all negotiating. And in my book, I go through those few days in great detail, almost you know, minute by minute, hour by hour. And there are several times when people fear this is going to blow up. Interestingly, at the end of the second day, when the federal agents in the room and the police are kind of starting to diverge on their tactics. Three characters step in, three Muslim ambassadors from Iran, Pakistan, and Egypt. They all offer their services to walk in to the B'nai B'rith and face Khalis face-to-face, talk to him, and try to convince him to let the hostages go. It was a crazy plan. I go to that. I mean, if today to imagine that kind of plan going through, it's, it's just impossible to think that the United States would allow three foreign ambassadors to walk into a deadly hostage siege to try to negotiate on behalf of the United States. But through a really interesting back and forth between the White House, the Justice Department, and DC officials, they get the green light and they go in, and that's the really kind of the climax of the situation in some ways, but they are able to get a verbal agreement in there from Khalis that he'll let all the hostages go. 
Washington's brush with the jihad, a holy war against evil, is over, ending as dramatically as it had begun. Members so of an it started on March 9th, the morning of March 9th, very early on the mar morning of March 11th is when Khalas lets all of the hostages at all three locations go. The 12 gunmen at the three sites surrendered simultaneously. They came out from the areas where they'd held the hostages, dropped their weapons, and police hustled them through back doors to waiting squad cars. Khalas uh, goes to his home at the headquarters of the Hanafi Center and sleeps in his bed that night. So part, that was part of what he was able to get was so a release. He, he was not arrested immediately? He was arrested immediately and released immediately. But how on earth was he released? In negotiations, I guess, is what they call him. It was a really delicate situation, Michael. Yep. Everybody was cornered. You're exasperated, and that's how a lot of people in D.C. felt that morning of March 11th. There was a lot of relief. There was celebration. But on the, by the morning of March 12th, D.C. was up in arms and Capitol Hill was up in arms. So the last section of my book is really tracking the period after the siege ends, which turns into its own mess in Washington, D.C. in its own way. What happened to Khalas? Eventually, Khalas is arrested through some interesting maneuvering by the Washington, D.C. police. Now, all the Hanafis go to trial and they are all convicted of several charges, including murder. And Paulus uh, spent the rest of his life in prison. And he finally died in 2003 in North Carolina in a federal prison. In obscurity, which is, I mean, this news event really dominated the city. Um, and the country. Uh, and the country. What happened to the hostages when they were released? I guess you've, you spoke to like 100 people. Yeah, it took me about six years almost uh, of reporting. And I did, I spoke to more than 100 people for this book. Most of them, were directly involved with the situation. Either involved with Khalas through the 73 massacres, through the trials, and then the hostage taking and all mm -hmm. that. A lot of them were hostages. Uh, some of them left it all behind that night. And some are to this day, as I know, some weren't able to talk about it. They told me that they were glad I was uncovering all this, that I was investigating this story and retelling it because it hasn't been told. That's what's amazing in these 45 years, nobody's really dug into this story before. So while they appreciated it, a lot of the hostages told me blankly that, bluntly, that they aren't able to revisit those moments. I gotta ask, because I'm an old city politics reporter, were you able to speak to Barry before he died? Marion Barry? Yes. No, no, I wasn't. I started this in 2016. Okay, it was a couple of years later. Uh, yeah. Was he a hostage or he was shot and then taken to safety? Barry, Barry was shot on the chest and he had to be evacuated. He was pulled through a window on the fifth floor of the district building and through on a fire ladder taken down and ended up in the hospital in Washington. Soon after he entered the hospital building, and I read this in Dream City, that's where he decided that it's time to start a mayoral run and give uh, Walter Washington a challenge. And actually, right that afternoon, he called the press in and there were photographs of him on the front page of Washington Post. In his hospital room. In his hospital room, waving at the camera with a bandage exposed on his left side of his chest. So he knew, that's what my understanding is, that Barry kind of was a person who would see an opportunity in that. He was quite hurt, though. The shrapnel was very close to his heart. He could have died. It was a matter of inches. Wow. So what's really interesting about this, and particularly about it sort of having been lost to the ages, is this was 1977, so two years before the Islamic Revolution in Iran, the hostage crisis there, and kind of 
you know, obviously before 9-11, before the interaction between the United States and religious fundamentalist terrorism became such a familiar thing. Why does it matter today? I mean, it actually spurred a bunch of interesting things. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it's part of like what you were talking about in the beginning, you know, how don't I remember this? Why don't so, so many Americans remember this? And I think it's absolutely true. If something like this at this scale was to happen today in the United States, it would be seared into our memories for a very long time. There's no way America would just move past this and not remember 40 years later what happened when Washington, D.C. was taken over. I think part of the answer is that this, all of this was happening just right before America was fully coming into contact with global Muslim society and Islamic militancy as well. So this is two years before the Iranian hostage crisis, which is really probably the moment where America, the conscious, national consciousness starts to wrap itself around Islam as a political force. The Hanafi siege became really important and foundational for a lot of the anti-terrorism infrastructure that's built in America. Carter, immediately after the Hanafi siege, he restructures the terrorism bureaucracy at the federal level. And kind of America starts developing this language around terrorism and militancy, and in some ways begins to start talking about Islamic militancy. Um, well, I'm so glad that you have resurrected this for the book. It's kind of just an incredible deep dive into into history right here where we live. It's been a you know pleasure and an honor to kind of reconstruct it and do all this work. So yeah, I hope it's valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. And before you go, audio producer Julia Karen is here with some quick news. First up, the alleged Potomac River rapist was the eighth person this year to die in the care of the D.C. Department of Corrections. Giles Warwick was found dead in his jail cell on Saturday morning. His trial, which was about a series of violent crimes committed in the 90s, was set to begin on November 30th. The other jail deaths this year have included suicides, homicides, heart attacks, and accidental overdoses. Meanwhile, Maryland's election officials are still busy counting midterm ballots, passing the normal deadline for certifying election results on Friday. As of last Thursday, one in five ballots remained uncounted, and several state legislative and local offices remain undecided. The delay is primarily due to the many mail-in ballots this year. Also, it's Turkey Palooza time. It's the fifth year that the Washington Nationals Philanthropies and Bet MGM are hosting the event. And it's already on track to be the biggest one yet with over 800 turkeys. That's so many. And they'll all be given away for free. They're handing them out today at KIPP DC Legacy College Prep in Southeast and tomorrow at Oakcrest Community Center in District Heights. Go grab a turkey. And lastly, DuPont Circle was lit yesterday with the live screening of the U.S. men's team first World Cup game since 2014. U.S. team tied Wales 1-1. Check out our sister newsletter, Haiti hey C, to keep track of where you can keep watching the World Cup for the rest of the month. That is all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor and tell a friend. I'm Michael Schaefer from Politico. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from around the city. Bye. Uh, is there anything else going to come of it? Uh, you, you, a movie, show, podcast? <laughs> let's, let's do it. <laughs>